0: Hello and welcome to Michigan State University College of Osteopathic Medicine, statewide campus system, MedEd Transformation Podcast. I'm Dr. Deb Young. I am the Director of Faculty Development Today's discussion is going to highlight the process of integrating active learning reflection and assessment into the virtual classroom. We're going to be talking about a course in the undergraduate medical education space. However, many of the concepts can be extrapolated to the graduate medical education world when discussing um, changing of rotation or overall GME programs and it is really about getting learner involvement and active listening by the faculty. And I am joined uh, here today with Dr. David Strobel, um, who is the course director for the cardiology course. And, and uh, David, if, if you wanna take a minute and uh, kind of give an overview of your course and, and what's been going on, and then we can start talking about some of the, the great changes you've made.
1: Uh, sounds good, Deb. Nice, uh, nice visiting with you, and thanks for inviting me. A uh, little, little background. Our our course is uh, is named uh, OST 579. It's the cardiovascular medicine uh, second year course, uh, which is nine credit hours and takes us about eleven weeks uh, to deliver. Uh, usually, in the late fall, right up until the uh, students are finished with semester five, which takes them just before their uh, vacation holiday in December. And uh, of course, this past year, uh, lots of changes with COVID-19. We um, decided early in the in the planning that we would do an all-virtual course, even though at, at the time we started planning in March of last year, there was so many unknowns. But I just thought it would be best to just have all my faculty aligned and, and myself to to do a virtual presentation so we didn't have to go on again, off again, turn it on or off. And in retrospect, that, that was the right decision.
0: Yeah, and the, the virtual type classroom really isn't new to MSU Comm because of COVID. Um, MSU has, the, the College of Osteopathic Medicine has three campuses. And so two of our campuses really participate in virtual learning on a regular basis through the Polycom system.
1: Yeah, you're right, Deb. Um, So I've been course coordinator now, I think I'm going on my 10th year and took over for Dr. Ralph Otten, who did a great job for many years before me, and I assisted him uh, for several years before he had turned the reins over. Uh, And of course, as the when I first started teaching at the university, we had, we had 120 students uh, in one campus uh, at Michigan State Comm, but we um, then, of course, grew, and now uh, it's the average number of students, as some of your listeners may know, is, is 300, uh, which is divided into three campuses now, uh, 200 students in our East Lansing campus, but then we also have Uh, around 50 students at the uh, Macomb University Center and then another 50 students that are learning remotely from the Detroit Medical Center. And with that expansion and adding the satellites, we then uh, developed, as you mentioned, a a polycom system so that as I was lecturing in the front of Fee Hall uh, in East Lansing, uh, the students would would see me live um, you know, at the remote sites on a big screen, uh, and uh, they they could you know ask a question, but it, that was kind of cumbersome uh, to 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 accomplish that. They'd have to come up, get the microphone, ask a question, and have to repeat the question, and you know there was always challenges with that. To be real frank, uh, as you know, you were you were involved with uh, with MUC, and it it almost it felt bad as as the coordinator and, and kind of as the as a professor that the East Lansing students uh, just, you know, by the nature of the system had an advantage. They in between lectures could come up uh, when the recording was off and ask questions. You know, you could physically interact with them. You, you got to know more of the students by name, obviously the, the students in front of you. And so I never really thought it was a, really a level playing field you know, from a student experience. And I worked my best to try to develop smaller breakout sessions on occasion or things where I could actually have a more abridged polycom session with the students at MUC and DMC during some case study workshops and things like that. But it it, it still wasn't, you know, an equivalent experience. But with, with COVID and, and with us forging, forcing really a, a, a full virtual format, and then, of course, Learning the the Zoom platform, which I you know got pretty good at, and and with all the technology involved with it, uh, it it was it was an eye opener for me because then finally I felt for the first time uh, since I've directed the course that I did have a level level playing field. The experience for the student at MUC and DMC was identical to the student in East Lansing and vice versa. So that that's one of the things that. Uh, to be honest, I don't think ever would have happened, you know, without the pandemic and without, you know, forcing uh, really uh, an embrace of this this new way of, of delivering content, um, you know, remotely.
0: In that transition from being live and in, in front of some students, even though there were two other campuses, as you say, on an island to transitioning to being a hundred percent virtual in front of all the students, what would you say were your biggest challenges um, on both sides in the Polycom world, as well as the zoom world for you or your faculty?
1: Yeah, that's again, a, another great question. So uh, I, I was very intimidated by what we were going to embark because I've got a lot of moving parts, you know, in my course, it's a, it's a, it's a big course. It's a, it's a long course. It's a difficult course. I've got a lot of great faculty that that help me. I don't I don't give all the content, um, but I I give about you know total of probably sixty you know lecture hours between that and and some of the other uh, style of uh, boot, what I call boot camps and and various webinars, uh, grand rounds, etc. But it, um, one, of, one of the previous challenges, you know, obviously, was that, that, that personal connection with the student. And, um, and that, that still is there. I mean, that's one of the difficulties with, obviously, a virtual platform. But the advantage, though, is, of course, in the Zoom platform, you, you can get chat messages. You can have Q&A sessions. Uh, you can change from a Zoom webinar to a Zoom meeting where then you actually can have, you know, the video and audio on of the students participating. We, we limited that to smaller events um, because it'd be kind of cumbersome with this year we had 298 students. We couldn't have all their, their videos up and all asking questions and participating. So so one of the challenges, I think, is to kind of contain Some of the Q and A until you know after the content has actually been delivered, and there's you know some disadvantage of that. Some students like to you know ask a a question as you as you are moving through the content or for clarification. Uh, But we we navigated that pretty well. Um, You know the the same problem with Polycom as I mentioned. Asking the questions were difficult and uh, from the remote sites. And so what I did the last few years when we were doing the the Polycom broadcast is I again asked the students uh, uh, if we could just hold questions till the end and always make sure there was time for questions but then it was just more orderly um, to have those at the end and you know I'm sure as any instructor found um, there's there's occasionally a few students and and that's their right but they they seem almost to kind of dominate the questions I mean they've got they've got lots of questions and So so the kind of a disadvantage for that type of student is they may not have as much face time, but on the other hand, we offered other opportunities, such as uh, something we called the daily Zoom, which was a separate uh, faculty-led Q&A discussion with the class, so that after the morning's content was done, Students could then go into the meeting format and have what we called a, a, a daily Zoom where they would have FaceTime with uh, at least uh, a professor or two that, uh, you know, carried the content for that day or the, the few days preceding that. And we also incorporated, incorporated uh, discussion boards so that if we couldn't get to a question, that uh, we could address it later in the discussion board that students had access to. And they could also ask uh, questions uh, in that format. So we just, uh, you know, that, that's probably the biggest drawback is you just, you don't get that direct content contact with the student. And I miss that. Um, and I think the students miss that, but it's, it's really not something you can accomplish with 298 students anyway. So uh, I, think, I think right now the, the system that we have for handling the uh, student questions and, and the need for clarification, it, it, it's still handled well. Uh, but probably not to their, you know, all the students' preference.
0: I, I love that concept of, of the daily Zoom. I mean, it just gives another opportunity for students uh, and learners to to ask their questions in a, a safe space. Um, and also, if one student has a question, most likely more than one student has a question.
1: You're right, Deb. Some students um, would would sign in. We could see their names because you can always see the attendance list, of course, in, in Zoom uh, as a presenter, and you'd see tons of students that never asked a question, but they still like to be part of that and have the opportunity if they wanted to, to throw a question out. But to the credit of my faculty, one in particular, I'll give a shout out. Dr. Stephen DiCarlo, who uh, helps us with our with our physiology content, which is pretty heavy content early in the course, um, he did a fantastic job with the daily Zoom sessions. Where he actually had a listing <laughs> behind him. He he broadcasts live for him his lab over at the BPS building. Uh, he got you know I, I helped him and we we both kind of learned about the equipment we would need. I I developed a little recording and broadcast studio right right in my uh, home office and uh, really did a lot of homework early, uh, you know, in March and April uh, working with the IT department at MSU and kind of built basically a uh, uh, kind of a cool little broadcast studio uh, desk and with the necessary equipment, uh, quality microphones and lighting and things that I needed to do to actually record my own content as well as broadcast it live. Dr. DiCarlo was really intrigued by that and he developed with the help of the IT department and and Steve and Elmer who worked very closely with us in developing the virtual course, uh, developed a little mobile um, uh, broadcast cart for him that had double um, uh, webcams on it and allowed him to go back and forth between slides and actual demonstrations right live in his lab again, something we never would have even considered if it wasn't for COVID, but it really brought kind of a live experience uh, to the students, uh, and he, he actually did some uh, some animal demonstration models, and boy, I tell you, those were very powerful. Students really uh, could really understand the concepts better with, with those type of presentations, and he was, you know, he would call students out by name, uh, you know, they would, you know, they'd have to click in and, and, and interact with them and visit, and uh, and all students got pretty comfortable that it. it was, as you mentioned, kind of a safe zone, uh, even though some students rather would kind of be a little quiet behind the scenes that you know he really tried to get everyone involved and active and by, by, the, by the end of the course we had a much larger number. these were all optional sessions, but a lot of, a lot of students really enjoyed that opportunity to interact with the professor in a more direct way, but also you know get, get a little bit more better understanding of the content and, and got their questions answered. And uh, I sat in on a lot of those uh, and helped them with a few. And uh, it, it was really amazing. It really helped the students um, integrate, you know, what they've learned and, and put it kind of into more of a practice. And, uh, and that's where I think they, they really solidified their learning and really helped them for their board study as well.
0: And you you also had a lot of active learning um, sessions. I remember in the Polycom world, active learning sessions, the grand rounds, the boot camps, the group case studies where you would pop in and out of different connected Polycom uh, uh, connections. How did that transition into the virtual space? And how do you see this transition uh, moving forward?
1: So I, yeah, it's interesting. I, I I mentioned to you, I got a a few slides. I was going to show you what the students thought of the, the virtual presentation, the virtual course. And uh, it, it was really uh, amazing to me. They really embraced, you know, the, the mix that we had of recorded lectures and then live webinars. The webinars weren't, recorded. In other words, I, I gave a prof, what I called a professional or attendance point if they attended events that I felt was really important for their learning. Um, when you make I've learned when you make things optional, particularly when you've got a class of almost 300, uh, you know, there's a lot of students that are going to sit it out. They're, they, you know, they're busy. They've got other things, other demands. If something's optional and it's not really required, I mean, you'll be lucky to get a third of the class to attend. But by me just giving like a single attendance or professional point, uh, even for a three-hour session, I had about 98% of students, you know, sign and engage. And we keep them engaged because we would have a lot of um, reef polling, which is the uh, cloud-based iClickers that we use, the audience response system. And and so we use that, I think, to engage the students. They all would, uh, they knew they had to... pay attention to what we're talking about. So for example, you mentioned the boot camps, the, the boot camps for, for EKG and rhythm strip interpretation. And, and they would already have their uh, webcasts, recorded webcasts that they could go and really learn how, my method at least, for interpreting EKGs and rhythm strips. But then we would have what we call boot camps, where I would just have a series of, un, of quote unquote unknown EKGs or rhythm strips pop them up, uh, have maybe five foils below them and ask them, you know, what do you see here? And they would answer. uh, And we would of course record the answers, not that they were graded on it, but at least we knew they were listening and and participating. And then based on how the class responded, if 90% of the class, you know, picked the correct uh, rhythm strip interpretation, then we'd move on. But if we had a a 50, 50 mix or, you know, uh, we just had some, some confusion, it allowed me to, um, you know, dig into that EKG a little bit more. And again, back to learning the technology, I, I found a way to um, develop uh, a a tablet which would allow me to annotate uh, very precisely, you know, circling certain EKG waveforms like a P wave or a QRS, and then being able to kind of draw out a little bit of of how I approached, you know, that that particular interpretation. So that that was. Uh, Yeah, I think it was very effective. And again, I think more powerful because the students had very good copies of this, you know, right in front of them, as opposed to just looking at a large screen, uh, with, you know, still decent reproduction, but it's not something you have right in front of you on your tablet, on your computer, where you can take your own notes. The attendees could take their own notes and, uh, and and practice along, you know, with me. So, you know, that kind of the flipped classroom uh, approach where they were expected, you know, to have a pretty good idea of how to interpret an EKG rhythm strip before before we started those boot camps. Um, And uh, so it was very, very successful in the virtual format. Um, The case study workshops that you mentioned, which were smaller group case studies, um, unfortunately, just kind of because of the, the technical challenges of having breakout rooms and things going wrong and having more IT support, I still did those in a, in a webinar format where I had a lot of reef polling, still would go over the cases, but it wasn't where they could really sit and individually work at them on them together. Um, so the, the sessions you remember that I used to do with Bipolycom to the individual satellites were now more of just a large uh, class exercise. But still uh, very, very good feedback, uh, you know, from the students on those, even even on that virtual type presentation. So uh, all those things really, all the things that I did before translated pretty well uh, to to virtual. And uh, it allowed me, again, to add even some other things that I piloted this past year, uh, just to see, well, now that we're doing it, what about, what about this uh, 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 student experience or what about this particular learning activity? It allowed us to kind of branch out and do some, uh, some very interesting uh, different types of events that, uh, again, the students responded you know, pretty nicely to.
0: I wanna pick up on something that you just said about the, the branching out. And this kind of connects a little bit to uh, when you said that you were able to connect to the lab and, and really see how physiology works in, in animal models. And that, that wouldn't have happened if it wasn't for COVID. You're not the first person who's brought up the fact that we're able to connect because we had to think outside the box that we're able to connect and reach out to different areas because of COVID because now we're able to do it through Zoom. How do you see um, education, whether in the UME world or the GME world, expanding? Because now we can so easily connect to John Hopkins or Mayo Clinic or another medical school or, or anything like that. Where do you see that going?
1: Yeah, Deb, so I, I think it's, it's not just in, in education or in, in, in my little world, my medical school education, but I think the whole uh, pandemic – has goosed everyone along in, in all fields to things that probably were going to happen anyway, but we just, we just really accelerated, you know, the process and, and forced us, you know, to, to learn and adapt. And I, these were some things I think were going to happen anyway. Um, there, there were, I'll just give you an example. There There's some things that I always wanted to do in my course that, you know, I just couldn't figure out a way to do it. I really wanted to, to have live patient interviews where I could, let's say we just got done talking about uh, valvular heart disease. Um, how, how could I bring in a patient that really had uh, advanced aortic stenosis, and then underwent. You know, what kind of symptoms did they present with? How did how did uh, what kind of diagnostic testing did we do? What was the experience with the aortic valve replacement going under a major open heart surgery? Just to get it from the patient's perspective. But I figured, you know, how could you do that? I mean, if I was lecturing in East Lansing, I, you know, I could bring in a patient, but then, you know, there's 200 students staring at them and, you know, I could even turn the chairs around, but they'd still feel kind of, you know, it's kind of an uncomfortable, there's a lot of people watching me. Well, I did something that I called the the Zoom clinic at noon. So there were, as I was getting the course ready, I just had a little notepad as I saw patients uh, over the course of the of the year that I said, boy, that would be a great patient, um, that we could, you know, would would probably be very interesting to students. And I worked with um, uh, Dr. Deb, who kind of helped us pick students, uh, pick patients rather, that I was thinking about um, that, that were diverse, uh, that had, um, you know, various um, uh, social determinants of health. And we really kind of thought it out and talked about it. And we and, and those were very, very powerful. So in other words, it was just like you and I visiting here in the podcast, but actually it was a, it was a uh, virtual um, a Zoom meeting. So they could actually see the patient. There's just a patient on one side of the screen and me on the other side of the screen. And we're just having, you know, just a great conversation. And the students could listen in and see that. Uh, then we would excuse the uh, patient. And then Dr. Deb and I had kind of a little panel discussion about, okay, you know, what, how did you approach this? Or what what were the challenges for this patient, you know, given, you know, certain, uh, you know, social, you know, challenges or economic challenges or cultural challenges. And that, the students love that. now that's something I you know, I never would would have done probably or I thought about doing, but I, I mean, I never, and I just didn't know the technology well enough that I could do something like that. So that's an example of that, that's gonna be something to stay in my course that, you know, and, and I'll probably make it even a, a bigger piece of the course next year. Um, but to your question, it. I always wondered, like, why, you know, why are we like I this year recorded like as I mentioned, probably an additional thirty lectures, all new, all new PowerPoints, uh, updated them all, new handouts, recorded them. I think they're very good, but to be frank, you know, someone at Johns Hopkins, you know, or at Duke or or somewhere else, you know, there may be even you know fancier bells and whistles and technology with. Uh, you know, 3D anatomical models and, you know, with, with heart sounds associated with it. And, uh, you know, obviously productions of content that would, you know, would, would be better than mine. Now, I, I again, I feel like I, I give a good lecture and the students like my lectures. But my thought is, since I've gone now to all recorded content and then just worked on more of application of that content in things like the boot camps and the interactive grand rounds, uh, and case study workshops to me, that'll be my, my future role. In other words, they, they learn the content, uh, learn it from, you know, maybe someone that can teach it better than me. And then, you know, I help them integrate it and, and help them apply it and, and bring it all together. And that's one, one of the reasons, um, I, I developed the last week of the course was really new—not new content. It was just case studies, branching back cumulatively all the way to the beginning of the course, where we, you know, present a disease state, you know, go through the the physiology, the pathology, you know, what pharmacology was involved, what what's what the clinical medicine was, uh, you know, diagnosis and treatment, and it was it served as a great review, but also a chance for the students to really integrate all these things they learned. And I've always found that, you know, I assume they got it, but the students really don't get it until you really kind of bring it home and make them think. And then, you know, here's the case, here's the symptoms. What do you do? What do you order? And that is a very, very helpful week. I think it finally really keeps them from just, you know, memorizing and pre- urging content to actually you know having the building blocks of content cornerstones of of understanding and then they apply it and 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 that that I think is really the future of education. I know you've been involved with things like that in OPC and more longitudinal courses, but that I think is going to be brought to the to the systems courses as well.
0: I, I think you're right and I think you really hit on a point of you know faculty we, we only have when Really, six six months, three to six months to make any changes to our course for the next time that a course is going to be launched because they happen every year. Um, you run the course, you debrief the course, you make changes, but content's really, you, you know, you have to have that finalized and course packs and who's teaching what and what days and I mean, really, three to six months to make changes and that COVID really forced you to make changes quickly, early on in the planning. And, and you ran with it, and uh, there's always going to be things that you'll want to modify. But I think you made a great point of, you know, the content can really now come from anywhere, and it's going to come down to the that active learning model.
1: Right, Deb, and also you know we're we're in a big sea change when it comes to residencies now, and and just certification and. And, and, and the boards, you know, are, are probably going to be, you know, be, be similar. And so um, we're in that world really already, right? And so I, I just think that it makes more sense to have everybody with the same building blocks and and have the ability that it's, it doesn't really matter, you know, where you are. You can, you can still learn the content. Uh, but then, again, our job, and I think that's where, you know, where our faculty will shine and that we will be able then to um, help them really get ready then for, you know, going from the pre clerkship to the clerkship years, you know, be ready for the boards, but, but particularly ready to be ready at bedside, where they're just not, again, doing the undergrad style of, you know, memorizing and then purging and getting ready for the next, you know, exam, you know, we, we have to, you know, get more into them really having a full understanding of the disease state so that and and how to handle that bedside experience with the patient. And so that that's what I think is going to is going to be better. So a lot of these things, you know, are changes, you know, for the better.
0: Yeah, I think that's a million dollar question that we're all uh, trying to face is, you know, the, the bridging of the curriculum course to course, semester to semester, year to year, and then really that final bridge of UME to the GME world, to then the am I'm gonna say the CME world when you're an attending, you know, full full physician and, and being that lifelong learner. I'm gonna change gears for a minute because something always amazed me when I was faculty in, in your course, is that you always had the highest percentage of students give feedback to your course. And as, as a course director myself and, and faculty person, like we strive to get that feedback, but you do something really unique in your course that I think allows you to get that feedback. You have student course liaisons. Talk to me about that.
1: Yeah, so this actually is a little story behind that. I remember one of the last years, Dr. Otten was the um, course coordinator uh, I remember being in the front of the room with him and he was just being deluged with students coming on, asking him questions. Um, his uh, course assistant at the time just burned out, overwhelmed. I mean, cause we had, you know, we had, we had 300 students and Dr. Otten, you know, when he started was teaching, you know, 80 students. And now we got 300 students um, with all of them, you know, let's say just a, you know, classic example of, let's say the handout in their course pack doesn't match, match the content of the lecture that's being given. The course assistant would get, you know, 200 emails and saying, you know, hey, this content doesn't match, you know, what we're being, this is the wrong handout. Or, or for example, let's say there was a concept that we, you know, we discussed Um, You know, students, you know, want to email us, you know, and of course, they should be able to interact with the professors, but there's a difference between a class of 80 and a class of 300 where you'd just be up all night um, trying to answer the same question, you know, you know, 50 different ways. So it made me think that what would really help would to be almost, you know, have the equivalent of graduate graduate assistants. They're actually students that are taking my course, but students that, you know, for whatever reason are very interested in internal medicine or cardiology and obviously are, are, are very, um, you know, have good learning skills. They're, they're, they're students that are respected by their classmates, have good communication skills. So I uh, decided to just pilot having what I called cardio liaisons, which were liaisons uh, just specific to my cardiology course. And uh, the way I chose those is I just went to a student leadership. You know, I got a hold of the student leadership. I said, look, you're familiar. I don't know anybody out at MUC and DMC that could help me with this. Could you, you know, reach out and find out, you know, which students would, would be interested in this and, and just kind of throw it out to them. I did a little job description of what it, what it would entail, what the responsibilities would be. And uh, they gave me a set of names. I, I then would have a, a meeting because at the time I was using a go-to-meeting format just for, for meetings with smaller groups. And we'd have a little meeting and, and, and kind of give them my vision of what I wanted to do with the course and what their role would be. And uh, and then we we sealed the deal. And so I usually had at least one representative at MUC, and then one at DMC, the two satellites, and then uh, two for East Lansing, uh, or maybe three. Uh, and uh, and that was so successful the first year we continued to do it. So what it allowed us then to do is to funnel, um, you know, questions, comments, and and limit you know everyone reaching out. The students in the class got comfortable uh, because the communication was super. In other words, once we identified a problem, by getting that liaison then to contact me directly or the course coordinator directly, you know, we were able to uh, take care of it immediately. So it, and it allowed us to do it on the weekends. Um, it it uh, that they had their own way of communicating they communicated by facebook and they also would send out class emails after our meetings uh, i'd have a liaison meeting uh, every monday night and we would kind of review what the week ahead was and they would kind of put forward hey this is this is the word on the street the, the students like this they dislike this there's a challenge with this and we really were able to take care of problems before they festered and if possible made you know real time corrections and so back to your question, you know, how, you know, because of the, you know, the feedback, um, how, how did I get so many students maybe to participate in evaluations? The students felt that they appreciated so much that ability to have that level of communication. They felt so connected that I feel a lot of the students just feel they want to give something back. I mean, they, they appreciate it to the point where they know that I would take their feedback and uh, it would not; it may not improve it for this year's course, but many times it it might if it's something that uh, we could correct in real time. Um, but but we they knew it'd be better for the class behind them, and that's how I think my course continued, you know, to get better and evolve because uh, the students would provide very thoughtful feedback. I was amazed how much time they would take, really, you know, on these evaluations. Um, and it, it's, it's priceless. And so this past year we had 298 total students. And in my surveys, I had 284 students respond. Um, not all of them, you know, would write a chapter, uh, you know, on, on the topic, but I mean, but, but most of them, you know, you know, at a minimum would uh, help us with the Likert scale questions and then usually give, you know, a line or two of, of feedback. So, so, uh, so. Hold on,
0: Dave. You. I'm sorry. You said 298 students and 284 responded. I think in most courses, we hope that we at least get a 30% response rate on evaluations and oftentimes probably get less than 15 and you got a 95% response rate.
1: Yeah. And it's this, you know, that's, that's, that's how it's been, you know, the last, the last several years. So, um, it's, it's a good feeling. You're right, Deb. I just, I am amazed every time that I get that kind of response. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's usually very positive, but, you know, there is, there is a chance for students to kind of express some frustration. It might just be with my course, but just in general, how things are going, you know, with, with the college uh, or with their education Uh, but they know that I'll share that information with administration, you know, in a a positive way. And yeah. So just an example we were talking about um, the, when we had the Polycom version of the course, students in East Lansing got very frustrated with the Q and A's because when someone asked a question from MUC or DMC, um, they had to get to the mic, interrupt the flow of the content it, it took a while technically to get the question. Then I had to repeat the question so that it was recorded and then, you know, give the answer. And a lot of the students felt like, look, this is interrupting, you know, the flow of, of the lecture. So I just sent out, you know, it was kind of spontaneous, but we just sent out, you know, a, a survey on how to handle Q and A and, it was, you know, it was almost overwhelming, not completely overwhelming, but over two thirds of the class said, look, please reserve the questions to the end, uh, more so in the East Lansing group. But then I just showed the students, here here's here's the response. This is what this is what your classmates want. And everybody accepted it. You know, they might make a comment later in the evaluation, say I still would like to ask live questions, but it, it seemed fair, you know, and at least I, I heard them. And we, we, we tried to do a democratic approach to, okay, how should we handle this problem? And wh- when you do things like that, I think you got happy students. And when the students are happy, the course just runs smoother in my, in my opinion. So I, I'm a big proponent to feedback. Doesn't all have to be positive, but sometimes just the fact that the students can give that feedback and feel that their voices are being heard, their concerns are being heard, uh, really, really pays dividends.
0: You said you had a couple slides you wanted to share regarding some. Yeah, of Yeah, let's see if so, I
1: can uh, find those real quick here. I think this is, I think this is it here. Yeah. So can you can you see that? Deb, on your end. All right. Yeah. I just I threw a few to show you how that how that feedback might uh, might work. Um, so let me just back up a little bit. Um, so, for example, the boot camps, and I always like to get feedback, you know, how that current class felt, you know, how these, these boot camps the so far flip, flipped approach worked. And boy, that's reassuring when you have 284, you know, students and, and 70% of them strongly agree and then another 25% agree. So that tells me I'm on the straight I'm on the right path and you can't even see the slice that strongly disagrees. So very few, you know, didn't like it. So um, that's an example of something that gives me feedback to say, good, that's something if I pilot, it's it's working. Um, Should there be more or less emphasis on EKG material? Because uh, when a student finishes with my course, I've got basically an EKG and Rhythm Strip Interpretation course within the course. Now, not all that material is going to be on the boards but I, I feel it's important. It's something that Dr. Otten did, and I just kind of picked it up and continued to kind of fine tune it. But 87% of the class said the current emphasis is ideal. You know, a few said, you know, you know, much less emphasis is needed. That's just a sliver. But it's not the majority of students, even though they, not, they know all that's not going to be bored material, are still very happy that they were able to, by the end of my course, learn and interpret an EKG and rhythm strip very proficiently. Uh, grand Round, same thing. You can see that strongly agree and agree. Um, they they liked that integrative case study uh, approach. Here's we were talking about the daily Zoom uh, meetings. Like how 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 were they helpful? And you could see 40% said yes, continue the same format. Uh, 20% said yeah, but you don't need as many. Um, but you, you can see, you know, just a small percentage, 12% didn't attend, not worth the trouble. Uh, but most of them, you know, like the idea, at least, you know, more than half the class thought it's something that it's, it's a useful format. Again, it was optional. So some students didn't attend because they hadn't covered the material yet. And some people just, you know, they got other things to do and that's fine. But we more, you know, when you get over 50%, it's helping students. It's a good thing. Uh, we did something where we did an individual quiz on the Friday before the uh, Monday exam. It, did, it wasn't worth a grade or points, but did the students like it? And you can see overwhelmingly, they, they strongly agreed or agreed. So again, that's something that we put in. We have four individual exams within my course. So they, we just made sure there was one before everyone. Uh, this was that professionalism or attendance point policy. Uh, again, overwhelming that students, even though some of them in the evaluation said, look, you have three points, not one point if I got to sit there for three hours. And, you know, some people you know, thought that, man, I, I got to sit here for three hours for one point. But overwhelmingly, they, they liked that, that policy. So that, again, told me I was on the right track and allowed me to, um, you know, incorporate maybe that a little bit more. Uh, I always, you know, I'm concerned, am I preparing the students properly for their board tests because I'm semester five, they're going to take the boards shortly after semester six, and they're already studying for boards. But you can see, they felt that the way I integrated some of the uh, the, the first aid, uh, step one for the USMLE uh, textbook. Um, and they, they, they liked that. They felt that that was helping them study for the boards as they studied cardiology, which I personally think is, is really the way to do a board review. This is interesting. And I'll um, just show you the pie graph because it looks kind of all over the place here. But then I, this was, the, I think, the bottom line here, the question that we have to answer. If I'm going to do the, planning the course next year, assuming the pandemic was behind us, what would they like after the virtual format that I did this year? So let me kind of show you it in this way. So 96 of the 284 students said continue with a similar virtual course, no changes. So a third of the class loved it as it was. Um, Then another 24% said continue with a similar course with mostly recorded lectures, but then maintain a mix of zoom webinars and in-person events. You know, that, Kind of makes sense. In other words, they still wanted some connection to the classroom. So maybe instead of, a, you know, Grand Rounds that would be virtual or Zoom, maybe, you know, have an in-person event so that they could get together with their classmates or, you know, actually interact, you know, with the professor uh, in real time. Um, Then another 24% said, continue with a similar course with mostly recorded lectures, but eliminate all Zoom material and transition back to in-person events. So these are probably the students that really missed, you know, the social interaction with classmates and professors. So that was another 23%. So um, very few said, you know, transition back to the way we used to do it. 16% wanted to go back to the old way. So that's that's the power of of these numbers, you know. So you're right, Deb, when you get 90 out of, you know, 284 students on a survey, it's going to be the students maybe that really hated it or the students that, you know, really loved it or, you know, to me, this, this is accurate. So I, I, sometimes I don't put weight in evaluations when there's 90, right? I want to have all of them, the ones that normally don't, Answer surveys. I want to. I want to know what everybody's thought was. Everybody gets to get a gets the same vote, and now I think this is this is the question I you know I wanted to answer for next year is how will I approach this and I probably will do something you know where the yellow is there similar course they love the, having all the recorded material in front of them, but then mix up still some live events when I do the uh, flip classroom approach, and then I think I'd have you know, almost 85% of the class, you know, on board. Uh, and uh, so that, again, I think is the, the beauty of of doing this. Now, the, only, the reason I developed doing my own course surveys is that the course um, end of course uh, faculty and course evaluation that the students do traditionally at the end of the course is usually formatted um, you know, so it's, it's the same questions for all of the um, system courses. And, uh, and that, I think, limits then to really kind of tease out this type of information that helped me with my specific, you know, course, um, you know, development. Uh, course pack information. This, was, this has changed over the years, but you can see now that only 10% of the class wants a printed course pack. You know, 67 two thirds want all digital. They wanna save the paper. Um, they're used to annotating on their tablets. Um, and so they, they like it. Other people, I mean, I'm old school. I like a piece of paper in front of me. So I like a printed. And um, so, but we'll probably do kind of a hybrid. I've learned a little bit by this and I might actually have two, very, two different types of um, course packs, one all digital uh, and then one that would be printed to kind of save on some of the paper. So they have at least the PowerPoints in front of them, but they don't need all the supplemental material that we put in the course pack. Uh, I had a required textbook. So that to say all the feedback's positive, you know, should the Lily textbook be required next year? And 90% said, no, they, they really didn't, they didn't really want it required. They didn't. So, Dave, they did. so
0: what, what are you going to do with that?
1: You know, that will be instead of required textbook, a recommended.
0: Okay. It's, a,
1: it's an excellent okay. textbook. I, I was very surprised because I thought they'd love it. And I always heard that, you know, maybe we should go to course pack. I mean, instead of a course pack, have a, have a textbook that we teach off of. But this told me they don't, they don't really like that. They like the fact that we do our own lectures and we give them a course pack. Uh, I don't think I included it, but there was one um, question I asked them. Uh, how, how do they study and it was it was kind of interesting. I mean, there's some students, uh, you know, not a large slice, but still a slice that just they're basically studying for boards during the course, and the course comes secondary to their board study. Um, there's others that, you know, uh, they they don't really look at the recorded lectures until a few days before the exam. I mean, it. So so I learned a lot by that. I think that's why having the attendance points and the professional points and having kind of forcing them to still keep up and come to those events is probably in their best interest. I, I mean, sometimes we, we give them a lot of different ways to learn, but sometimes I think we have to, they have to learn how to learn. And, and I think that's, that's what I've kind of learned myself is that I can't really assume that all students are able to, to do their own self-directed learning. We, we still have to guide them because they're just overwhelmed by how much content and other things that they have to do. Yeah, so those were just a few of the slides um, that I thought uh, might be helpful, you know, for your audience to, to look at of how I, I would use that type of um, evaluation and shaping the course and, and what I do going forward.
0: Dave, that's great. I I mean, I I think one of the things that that we're all faced with, and it's similar to when we're developing an assessment, like did the students learn from the course that we taught or the rotation that they're on, Um, but what we can actually learn from the evaluations and what we do with the evaluations is so important. So to close out today, what would be like your number one or two tips on how to really connect with your learners and, and make the content so that it is um, enjoyable and uh, beneficial.
1: Well, Deb, I think it's a mix. A lot of the things we talked about, um, I, I, think, I think the number one, at least from my standpoint is communication. Um, I assume what they want sometimes, but that's not really what they want. And so, I don't look at it as, it, you know, as I don't take it personal. It's just that I, it's it's a, you know, I've been doing this for a while. I'm I'm getting to be a bit of a dinosaur, yet I feel like I'm still adapting and learning. It's a new student, a new way they learn. And I fought that for a long time. You know, I I, I love to be in front of the classroom, you know, and so I fought tooth and nail that I wasn't recording all my content. But you see, that's what they want, you know. So, I guess one suggestion would be to communicate, but then be open, you know, to what you get back. And I don't take it personal. I mean, some students, obviously, when you have an anonymous, you know, feedback like that, you're going to get a few people that, you know, just are, are just, you know, disgruntled. And, and, and so you got to look past, you can tell which one those are, right? But but the ones that give you good, thoughtful, you know, feedback and, and kind of give you some good perspective from the student, and that's, that's really the key, is try to, try to figure out from the student perspective, you know, what, what, they, what they want and what they don't. And then adapt that, because sometimes you can't give them exactly what they want, but you still, at least they know that you are listening and, and trying to adapt it to make it best for them.
0: Well, again, th- thank you so much for that. I know that I've learned a couple things. I took a couple uh, notes down here, even for the sessions that I do on faculty development and and how we how I can engage with my CME learners um, the, that I work with on a regular basis. Be sure to tune in next month for our next episode, which will be about practical implementation of wellness. Thanks, and we'll see you soon.